today we are today we're ending the medieval period. I'm hoping to get completely through the medieval period, the last of the sunset it today. And that way next week we can begin what we call the modern period of church history, which is 517 on to today, unless you divide that up into the postmodern period, which is something that we debate um, how we divide up histories and whatnot. That's not really what we're going to focus on, though. We're going to really go on to 517, and I think we're going to end... I'll just give you a heads up. I think we're not going to get to you guys' lifetime. I think we're going to end about 1917, just because that sounds like a good place to end. And then you guys can rely on your own, you know, memories. To, I mean... <laughs> Just teasing, just teasing. <laughs> I teasing. Um, no, um, I, I think that'll be a good place. We'll get through the 1800s, and then uh, I don't think we'll go all into the some of the stuff that uh, hasn't fully hatched out in history yet, because we get into the 1900s and and like even like the Jesus movement or the Jesus Revolution we talked about and. That has not fully hatched itself out yet as to the ramifications of those, good and bad. So I don't think we'll really get into that period because um, it's interesting to study, but we haven't gotten that far. Um, so um, let's um, as we talk about this, let's. The, the, the works of the mystics and the reformers and the councils and the humanists, we're going to talk about the humanists today, um, really begin to bring around the end of the, the, the medieval period way of thinking. And that's why we're going to really stop it at 517 with the medieval period. Now, like I said, if I was studying... Uh, not medieval, not church history. I might have gone to fifteen twenty-seven. Uh, if I was studying, you know, warfare history, I might have gone to a different time period. Because there's no such thing as this is when the medieval period ends and this is when it starts. That's that's not how history works. There's no such thing as no one flips the switch and all of a sudden everything changes. It's a period. It's it's a process that happens over a great deal of time hundreds of years, that brings about a change in the way people think, attitudes, and it happens differently at different places as well. Like we're going to talk about the Renaissance today. The Renaissance doesn't just start at one period and then end. It's something that develops over time. And like the Spanish Renaissance will be happening at a different time period than the Italian Renaissance. And the French Renaissance will be happening at a different time. These things grow and change as people interact. Now, we live in a world today where interactions happen so fast that we take for granted that we transfer uh, thought so quickly uh, because of the Internet and cell phones and, and the world, TV, and the way we live. We take for granted that Thought transfers fast. But in a world that, where thought had to be transferred over scholars writing things down, passing the word on, um, then on top of that we had uh, um, 
uh, so there's scholars, there's passing the word on, there's, there's uh, trade that has to happen, and, and traders often brought uh, the, the new ideas and stuff like that. We have to uh, take, uh, take those things into consideration. And um, so, so this, this is how this, thing is, this works. So, um, so we're going to see some changes starting to happen at this part that's going to lay the groundwork for the Reformation and, uh, and bring it forth. Um, the first thing we're going to talk about as we talk about uh, the changes that happen is the Renaissance. Now, who knows what the Renaissance is? Not, well, yeah, the, well it, it gets, the Renaissance Fair gets its name because people dress like they did in the Renaissance. Or at least, you know, like they think they did. Um, um, rebirth, that's right. Renaissance actually comes from the word, Latin word birth and back. So it means rebirth or to bring back a new life. See, in the idea, and see, actually historians even argue whether or not the Renaissance even actually really happened. Um, not that the ideas happened, but can we really call it a rebirth? Um, can we really call it that? And that's something we're not going to really get into here, but there's some really fascinating arguments out there about should we even call it a Renaissance? But what happened is people at the time of the Renaissance looked back over history and said, okay, we have this period which they called the Dark Ages where nothing good was coming out and we had all this boring architecture and renewing. And they looked back at, at uh, the Greco-Romans and the, all the, the nice artwork and stuff like that. And so we're bringing back that way of thought. That something better can be, is, is, the, the best way is, is situated back then. Which I think could be something to be said about the way we th often think nowadays, right? We, how many of us, uh, well, I wish we could go back to the way things were. Could we go back to the way things were? Is it, was it really better? I think a lot of times we, we get in our head that things were better and different. But I mean, look at the, 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 the book of Exodus, right? We have the idea, you know, they were better. You were in slavery. <laughs> But they were better. Were they? Really? Um, and so we, we have that kind of attitude with the Renaissance, with this whole period. They were better back then. Let's grab that and bring it forward to this rebirth of artwork, rebirth of culture. And what we're really seeing with this is the collapse of the Roman Empire has finally worked its way out of the system. Because remember, for a thousand, it takes a thousand years for, to recover e economically from the collapse of the Roman Empire. And so it's finally worked its way out of the system. So you're seeing people being able to do things like paint pictures and take time off from work and, and you know, and, 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 and do, of course, it only affects the rich. The normal people are still suffering, just like they were in the medieval period. Or the, I mean, the, the bubonic plague, the, the Black Death is still happening. It's not like that went away just because people said, let's re -bring, bring back culture. It only helps the rich 
Those who have money to take off time and say, let's bring back this culture. And so we have this Renaissance period, and this is, but what this is going to do is going to bring back, uh, going to bring, I don't know, back is the right word. They're going to be rediscovering some things that they had lost, like Greco Roman uh, artwork, like uh, uh, Aristotle's and Plato's writings, uh, things that they had lost. Um, they're going to be a big push to go back to the original languages of the Biblical, the Hebrew and the Greek, uh, which they had lost the, a lot of that big push because only the scholars could do that. You know, a person who's just worried about living doesn't really care. <laughs> you know, it's not like they don't want to, but they don't have time to study Hebrew. They need the crops out. And, uh, and so you have to have that time, and this time of the Renaissance is going to bring about a time of, of rebirth. And some of the things that we can, we can look at about this time period is known a lot for its artwork in the churches and out. This is uh, uh, the Sistine Chapel on the Vatican, uh, built for Pope uh, Sixtius the Sixth. No, Fourth, Fourth, sorry, Fourth. Um, this is the private chapel of the popes. It's a big private place. Um, but anyways, um, you know, this one is done by, the ceiling in there is done by Michelangelo. That's, uh, you know, uh, not the Ninja Turtle. Um, the, 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 uh, the artist, you know. But... Um, As these kind of changes happen on a secular level, it's going to start infecting the church as well. Not, I don't know, affecting is the word. It's going to start affecting the church as well. People's thoughts change. How should we look at the world around us? And so the concepts that have governed the world and the church are starting to change at this time period. And so we're going to see a time in which... Um, um, humanistic points of view will come into the forefront. Um, it's a time period that has left that's leaving away a lot of the pessimistic way of thinking, including in the church. Uh, you know, woe was me, I'm a sinner, whipping, and the, you know, the the demons are visceral things that are attacking and pulling our beards out and. Um, and we're going to see a lot of going away from that to more of an optimistic um, experimental approach to life. Um, you know, there's going to be a, a separation from the desires to put God in every day of our lives because remember in the medieval period we talked about this what two weeks ago when we met that church was like often a daily thing we're going to see a going away from that where it'll be the holy days that they start to attend and there'll be less and less daily attendance um, and there's going to be more of a uh, a tendency to forget God on the daily life in this period as well. 
So, you know, goods and bads of this. Uh, but, you know, wealth and leisure are going to make things change, and they always do. The, the, most, uh, the number one thing that uh, there's uh, the, the, the white Jesus that everyone knows, uh, The Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci. Um, this is one of the examples of the Renaissance artists during the 14th and 15th century. This has uh, come out of the Italian Renaissance. Now, like I said, the Italian Renaissance doesn't happen at the same time as the French Renaissance. In the same time period, but it's not like someone flipped a switch. And you can't just say, well, it began this date. We usually came, claim a date, but that's not how thought happens. You start seeing things pop up slowly over time. And um, so during the 14th century, um, the Italian Renaissance, and actually it's probably going to be stronger in, the, in Italy than anywhere else. The Renaissance period is going to be stronger there than anywhere else in the world. That's why it's so famous, the Italian Renaissance. Um, And a lot of that happens, uh, well, one, because of time and, 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 and the Pope's presence and lack of war, but also the fall of Constantinople in 1453 caused many Greek scholars to bring themselves and Greek manuscripts into Italy to protect them from the Muslims. And so as they're being protected from the Muslims, they're reintroducing this to the Latin world that people have had time to, to think and, th and talk. So you're seeing this, um, these valuable writings kind of enter into the world again and uh, into rediscovering it, I guess we could call it. And, um, uh, and so they're going to uh, begin to think about the world differently in the sense of, um, of humanism and... Uh, and biblical humanism and individualism and um, and so we're going to see less of a desire for the popes to be the overall power during this time period. We're going to see a switch away. Well, I guess we need to talk about what is humanism first. Uh, we'll get to biblical humanism as we talk about renaissance as we talk about the switch of thought process we can talk about what is biblical humanism but um, renaissance scholars especially of the northern alps um, began to emphasize um, human thought so we, we call it humanism it's the idea and whether you agree with it or disagree with it not the point the point is, it highly affects our theology today, highly affects our Western way of thought today. Think about this, and, and we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll read out a definition of it in a minute, but um, who are our heroes? Who are our heroes? Let's talk movies. Let's talk movies. Who are our heroes in movies? The ones that save the day, usually by themselves, right? Rambo. Rocky, there you go. Um, Cliffhanger, there's another Sylvester Stallone movie. Um, Superman, absolutely. Um, yeah, we have these people that usually cut together. They might team up for a little bit, but they're the heroes. 
They are reminiscent of Greek, uh, Greek uh, idealis- idealisms that bring on a very individualistic mindset. See, in the Middle Ages, there was very much a sense of the community, the family, the society was all. It was, you needed the society to survive. And it was true, you know, the farming happened. You know, you were, the feudal lord took care of you, you provided for the feudal lord. The society was, there was a, a sense of, you needed society, you, you farmers did their job, the lumberman did the job, so everyone gathered together to survive. And there was very much that thought, well, here in the West, we've taken on more of an individualistic mindset. I don't need nobody. I can survive myself. And we've done this, we've taken that mindset, whether good or bad, maybe both. Um, and that comes from this Renaissance ideology that starts rising up, this humanism mindset. Now, we've obviously changed it over the years as we, we've grown and, and developed our mindsets. But it comes, it stems from this kind of humanistic mindset that the individual had the right to develop their own personalities, interests, um, the, uh, the powers of the human mind to interpret it data and bring sense to it. So it's no longer you need a priest and the group to the tradition to interpret scriptures. The individual can interpret scriptures. Um, and there's good to that, but there's also bad to that. I mean, how many good theologies have come out because someone said, look, I'm going to go up against tradition here and say that's not how we should be reading this passage. But there's also bad to that because someone says, look, we should interpret it this way, and they're totally way out there. <laughs> um, so it can be good and bad uh, in the Scriptures. And so we have this idea, this 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 this. This way that we have, we can bring ourselves into it. We're very individualistic, and that starts to come up during this this time period, which was very form, foreign to the biblical mindset. If you read the scriptures, it comes from an Eastern mindset, or a, 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 a if, uh, the Near East is what we call it. It's the East nearest to the West. <laughs> That's why it's called Near East, and it's. A mindset that's very much based on the community. You know, Jesus was in community always, and it was about the the honor shame that we often miss in our readings because we don't think about the honor and the shame, even though the Bible talks about it all the time. We bring glory to your, honor to your family. We think that means obedience because that's the way our mind has worked, but that's not really what it's saying. Bring honor meant so much more than just obedience obedience is like simple math when we're talking complex here um sean or shame glory is one of those things that the bible's always talking about the glory of god right and we think well it's just oh it just means he's bright and shiny and that's and we just leave it as that or like he's but it's in this honor shame society way of thinking it's it's his honor being exposed and growing and who he is and and the you know and, and um you know, and uh, with things like, um, oh, I was reading it today. Well, my mind has gone blank on the passage. I remember one passage. Oh, it was in, uh, 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 Goliath, uh, David and Goliath, right? Um, he shouts, uh, our, our translation says he shouts taunts 
out there. Most of the time it says shouts taunts. But what the, the Hebrew, when I was reading it, it says he shouts uh, shameful, he shames the society. He, he, the idea is there, he brings shame upon the society. So we miss that because we're not thinking about honor, shame, society. Um, and so when we start bringing in this, this Renaissance humanism into our scriptures, we kind of get something that has changed the way we read the scriptures. For good and for bad, I think. But um, I actually wanted to give a, a definition of humanism. Uh, then we're going to watch a quick video where a guy describes uh, uh, Christian humanism. But um, it's like seven minutes. It's actually seven minutes uh, seminary is what it's called. So, um, Humanism is a rational philosophy informed by science inspired by art, and motivated by compassion. And you can see this on the app in the notes. I put it in there. Affirming the dignity of each human being, it supports the maximization of individual liberty and opportunity consistent with social and planetary responsibility. It advocates the extension, (laughs) these are big words, aren't they, of uh, participatory democracy and the expansion of open society standing from human rights and social justice. Free from uh, supernaturalism, it recognizes human beings as part of a nature and holds that value be they religious, ethical, social, political, have their source in human experience and culture. Humanism thus derives its goal from the life of human needs and interests rather from theological or ideological abstractions. The assertion that humanity must take responsible for its own destiny. Now, I got that from the Humanist magazine. Um, so let's break down some of those thoughts. This is humanism. This is not Christian humanism. This is just humanism. So it's rational philosophy. So it means it's based on the idea of thinking first. Feeling second, so very much a rat, uh, our idea uh, that was arising at the time. And we even saw that in times past as they were beginning to switch from the um, God first to, to brain first. We, we saw that st- switch starting to happen. And so we have that rational thought. We also started to see some of the uh, scientific breakthroughs that are coming out of the Renaissance period that the Renaissance allows for some amazing things, you know, um, that that people had overlooked, you know, uh, the world. What's the makeup of the world? How does, you know, I, I think it informs us of God, but it, it, it's been, you know, but in, by science was starting, what we know as science is starting to become rebirth. Um, so it's, but it's influenced by art and motivated by compassion because it's all about the human experience, right? They said that it's not driven from theology and a supernatural God. It's, Religion comes from man's experience, is what the humanist would say. Um, so we kind of make a religious, in a humanist point of view, we make religion. Um, supernaturalism is, 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 is trying to be free from supernatural. Um, uh, so... Um, 
but it holds itself to be uh, free of this, the supernatural and try to, to, to divide itself into the responsibility of the human. So it puts this whole thing on humans, and we're responsible for our own destiny. There's no such thing as God making our destiny. It's, it's we're responsible for our own destiny. Um, and, um, and that. So um, now that begins to integrate itself into the biblical thought. Remember we talked about syncretism in the past? Our way of interpreting the scripture has never been just, this is church, this is, it's always informed and influenced and we influence the world and it influences us. It's just, it's the way we are. I mean, even the scriptures itself can be based largely on, on they were being influenced by their culture around them and God was informing them. A uh, good point of that is uh, uh, Tiamat is being combated in Genesis chapter uh, 1, 2, and 3. Uh, Tiamat is a uh, Mesopotamian chaos dragon and they, it takes days for... Uh, for Marduk to kill Tiamat and subdue chaos, and God does it with a word. And we miss that because we don't think about it in the, the cultural sense that it was written in. Um, and so, but, you know, there's no such thing as being without. The world and theology are influenced by each other and the way we look at it. That's why we have our own biases when we read the scriptures and we have our own way of thinking about it and, uh, and it's good and bad as we, we look at these things and there's no such thing as just one way of, uh, you know, that, that uh, make, you know, this is all bad, this is all good. Um, even the words we use to translate the scriptures is based, influenced, not based, but influenced by the world around us. Um, Uh, well, well, let's go back to that word, um, uh, that, that passage I was reading today about David and Goliath. You know, the word, um, we translate it champion because that's what we think of, the one who comes up and champions our cause. And The word there in the Hebrew literally means the one who goes between because he's the one who can walk the valley with no one fighting him. He can go on either side of the fence and, and, and make fun of everybody. We use champion because of the, our way of thinking has, has, has driven that, that interpretation. Um, is it wrong? No, that's a perfectly good translation. It's just not exactly what it says. Um, because we use one word, when, why should we use one word when it takes a whole paragraph to summarize what, <laughs> what they're trying to say? Um, and so we, we try to do the best we can. But it's, it's, it's influenced by the way we think. And so it begins to influence itself into Christian thought. And so then we have a Christian or a biblical humanism arise. And it's still popular today. Still very popular. In fact, as we talk, as we watch this video, some of you might say, well, I kind of believe in that. That's kind of something I saw. And it's because it's still very popular today. And even if you say, well, I don't believe in biblical humanism, notice how some of the things he's going to talk about in the seven-minute video influenced where we come from. All right, let's, let's go. Anna, can you turn on the, the sound for the video? Should be on. All right, let's, let's do that. 
Christian humanism sounds like a strange and maybe scary term to modern Christians. And that's because the term has been co-opted by the secular world. We even put that word in front of it, the phrase secular humanism. That isn't what we're talking about when we're talking about Christian humanism. Secular humanism takes humanity as the, the apex, the height of the cosmos. All of the randomness in this universe is, has bumped together until it's ascended to this pyramid with us at the top, so that our achievements are really the best thing that there is. Our value is found not in our origins, which were humble and random and kind of gross, actually, but in what we can achieve now and in the future, uh, not only having made fire and the wheel and civilizations and all the rest of it, but also technically, scientifically, perhaps in the future, even transcending our mortal limitations. Um, defeating death itself. That's the hope, that's the value in secular humanism. Christian humanism is a different thing, and even the Christian side of it is somewhat problematic because, as I'm sure you're well aware, the relationship of Christians to the culture around them has seldom been an easy one, and often a not peaceful one. It goes a long way back, but I could start with someone like Tertullian, the Latin church father who said of secular philosophy, what is Athens to do with Jerusalem? Rejecting all of the development of philosophy, the development of thought that we associate with uh, people like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. Not only that, but he wrote against going to the theater, against participating in other kinds of cultural events that we would see today as the arts and the humanities. He even said that Christians shouldn't teach in the schools because in the schools they read texts like the Odyssey, the Iliad, the Aeneid, which celebrated the feats of heroes who worshipped gods who were not the one true God of the scriptures. And that was problematic. Christian humanism, though, comes out of a different strain in Christianity that we could anchor in a figure like Justin Martyr, who instead of taking that pessimistic view that Tertullian presents, saw the good things in human culture, the good things, the beautiful things, the wise things, as coming out of a seed that is in within humanity, a seed planted by our maker, planted by God himself. He called it the Logoi Spermaticoi, the seed of the word from which grows all the good and valuable things in human culture, even that unredeemed by faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, that's the perspective that Christian humanism has on the human. Not that the Christian humanist is Pollyanna about humans. We know that there's a lot that's wrong with the human condition. We are fallen creatures. We are sinful creatures. Often our first instincts are our worst instincts. Yet still there is a grace that pervades the human character because we are made in the image of a good God. And even though that mirror is cracked, still it shines. And that is what the Christian humanist values. Now, if we want to associate names with Christian humanism historically, we might look to the Renaissance in Italy in which there was a, a rediscovery, a recovery of classical 
works in Latin and in Greek, figures like Desiderius Erasmus, who worked not only with those secular texts, but also to recover the, the text of the Greek New Testament, to re-engage with those founding documents of the Christian religion. In that era, the scholars of the church, the scholars of the Reformation were being trained in their interaction with figures like Cicero, with these ancient Latin and ancient Greek writers. They were cutting their teeth on that rhetoric, on that learning, and then turning it, bringing it to bear to theology, to the new ways of thinking that were arising in the church at that time. What does being a Christian humanist mean today, though? It means having not an unreservedly optimistic perspective towards the culture, but having one that seeks to find those sparks of goodness, those glimpses of beauty, those echoes of truth that we see ultimately in God's word and in the incarnate son of God himself. As Tolkien said, man is disgraced and he is dethroned but he still bears about him the tatters of the majesty which was once his own. And we can, as Christians, engage with the arts, engage with our culture in this way, and find in it the good, the truth, and the beauty that is our human heritage as those made in God's image. You can find that on YouTube. Um, I put the link to that in our show notes so that you can find that for yourself and other videos he did. Um, this is actually a picture of Erasmus, who was one of the humanist people. These, so these humanists, these biblical humanists, want to join, integrate Greek philosophy and, and that of the Bible um, Rasmus is actually going to be one of the things that set up and paved the way for the Protestant Reformation, his works will, uh, as he, he favors reform, not revolution, inside the Catholic Church, um, but his, his way of looking at things and, 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 and call for reform in the Catholic Church will begin to uh, pave the way for people like Martin Luther or Zwingli, who are the Reformationist, uh, the Protestant Reformation. Um, so that's one thing. So we've already covered one thing. Wow, one thing that leads the rise of the 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 the, um, the end of the medieval period. Uh, and the rise of the Reformation. The second one is the nation states and the middle class begins to come up. Um, in the classical world, the idea of the city-state is the largest political unit in which people might organize themselves. Um, the city is the number one. You have the city-state of Athens. You have the city-state of Sparta. We have the city-state of, uh, uh, you know, of, 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 of Ephesus. You know, like in the Bible, it's written to the church of Ephesus. Well, it was probably written to everyone within that city area that was the city-state. You know, Galatia, same thing. So we have that kind of attitude that it's really 
dominated by the city-state. Well, as it's going to be led by England, France, and Spain, as they form themselves into nations, um, the modern nation, we're going to see a development of, of this, this, this England is going to be developed. And along the line of a constitutional monarchy um, in which the Magna Carta, um, which was signed by John in 1215, will come up. Now, the Magna Carta is one of those things that every American should know because it's the basis for our Constitution. Um, it led the way for our Constitution 500 years later. But it's, um, uh, you know, the... the um, English Parliament is going to grow out of the feudal assembly and begin to, uh, as William the Conqueror, going to successfully invade England and going to uh, develop a high court. And, and we're going to see this kind of nations begin to arise that are going to change the way the world operates. So it's not just the city and its local area that's all important. It's going to be a nation being born. Not an empire made up of, lar of large city-states controlled by feudal lords. It's going to be a nation. Um, this rise of the nations of England, France, uh, Spain, these things are going to lead to the rise of, you, you, here in the United States. It'll come out of, out of this period as the nations begin to rise. The idea of nations. It's hard for us to think there weren't nations back then. There were empires, cities that ruled, and they might gather together, or one person might gather them together under, under one rule. But there wasn't a nation. The people didn't see themselves as one unified nation. Even Israel in the, in the Old Testament rarely saw themselves as a nation of Israel. They were the tribe of Benjamin. They were the tribe of, they were the tribe, and they might get together. It's not till relatively late do they see themselves as the people of Israel as one nation. That happens relatively late in the scripture. Look at the book of Judges. They, <laughs> they, they're at war with each other as much as they are with everyone else. Um, it actually happens really late that they start beginning these ideas of, of, um, of nationhood. And, and, so the, um, and so we're going to start seeing... Uh, the idea that we are one people. And it actually comes, interesting enough, the idea that we are one people comes out of war. Um, the, in um, English and, and uh, France, the number one war that this lit comes out of is the Hundred Years' War, um, which lasts from 1337 to 1453, which, yes, if you did the math right, that is not a hundred years. Uh, that's a little over. <laughs> Um, but, um, if you, and I'm not going to go into our, our, midi our, our, our English and French history, so you can read about the Hundred Years' War on your own time, but, uh, um, the War of the Roses, you know, the, it ends up, you know, these, these wars wipe out the old nobility and bring to about the people that we, or a people group, not just a city, but we are the people of England. We are the people of France. Uh, so we get a rise of nationalism. And 
there's an interesting juxtaposition that always happens with people because war and nationalism always go hand in hand. Um, we are, and, and sometimes it's caused by a war and sometimes the nationalism causes the war. Um, but they always rise together for some reason as, as we look at, the, uh, especially in modern history. Uh, for example, the World Wars, you know, uh, a great sense of nationalism led to like World War II, you know, well, helped lead to World War II. Um, as the nationalism led to that. And of course, the Cold War, another great example of nationalism. You know, we are America, you guys are the commies, you know, we're, you know, and it was in even our, our sports and, you know, uh, you know, Olympics and, and our, you know, and, and that kind of stuff. And, and so it's, and these things tend to rise together. And so, um, so we see like the Hundred Year War will bring out a, a, a get rid of the old nobility and bring out leaders, parliaments. And as you don't have the nobility ruling over one, you're going to have rich and poor, and inevitably, there's the middle class. Now, the middle class is going to do more for history than probably any other group. Um, that's why it's a shame we're seeing the middle class slip, slip more and more away because you have the poor that have no power, the rich who only claim power, and the middle class that move between, and it causes this growth of theology they're the ones that are growing more they're the way they're going to be the reformers are going to come because the rich have their power they don't want things to change right the middle class trying to reach for more will always bring out some more reforms you know the poor is just trying to survive they're not you know so you're going to have reform comes out of the middle class. We even saw this in the civil uh, civil rights movements, right? It wasn't the rich trying to, I mean, the rich sometimes joined in, but it was the middle class that led the civil rights movement. Lene, I saw you put your hand up. No, I said middle class influences history more than any other group out there. Um, yeah, the, the middle class will change. When it starts to pop up, we see more reformation happen in all areas of life. Not just theology, not just church theology. So it's really a, the study of the middle class, very interesting study. If, you, if, you, if you're into history, you know, go look at the rise of the middle class. It's fascinating. Um, as the middle class is the ones who will influence. Uh, they're the ones who fight the wars. They're the ones who, um, you know, uh, rise up the heroes. You know, we got people like uh, Jonah Arc who rises out of the the, uh, the middle class and uh, in the French history. You don't know who Jonah Arc is? Go read your French history. Uh, <laughs> um. um now, England and France are going to really kind of become um, going to become out of um, out of out of the wars. But like you have Spain, um, now it's going to really develop into a nation because of 
the struggle against Muslims. So it's, it's a different kind of war instead of fighting with growing up out of itself. It's, there's this, the Spaniards have been leading the fight against the, the Muslims for all these years. And you have things like the Spanish Inquisition, which is a horrible part of Spanish history, but it's, um, but it's part of it. And, um, and so um, we have that, uh, that come out of it. All right, I'm running out of time. Okay, skip over that. Real quick, we can cover this in a couple of minutes and then we'll be done. Um, Let's touch base on the Greek Orthodox Church. We've left them behind. We haven't talked about them in a long time. Remember, the Greek Orthodox Church was the church, the the Orthodox were when the world kind of split. And Rome kind of took over the Western church. Latin became the language of the West. Well, those Greek speakers became the Orthodox church, and we kind of left them behind. Um, They are still out there. Um, But they um, actually have very little Eastern expansion at this time. There's not a lot that happens in in there. The... um, one of the, there are there are a couple things that does happen at this time period that really kind of bring back the idea of the uh, uh, Greek Orthodox Church, and one of that is Russia. Uh, what will become Russia is invaded by the Mongols. Uh, you think Genghis Khan? It's actually his descendants, but Genghis Khan. We don't like to think about them invading all the way to Russia, but yes, they were. In, they pushed the boundaries. Um, and so they become under them. And so Russia um, strove this. So with that rising up and then being conquered, a Russian nationalism begins to probably, they begin to think of themselves as a people group where you have these foreign invaders, the, the, the Mongols, and you have this, we are the Russians. We are the true rulers of this land. And so you have this Russian nationalism that begins to And it's going to be a, a, a grasp to maintain religion and cult- cultures, which is actually one of the reasons why we still have the Eastern Orthodox Church, because the Russians will grab hold of this old religion, this, this religion that had been dying out in attempts to save their culture from the Mongols. They're going to grab hold of Eastern Orthodox with it. And the Christianity is going to be grabbed with it. And so we begin to have this uh, Russian Orthodox, uh, the, the Russian Orthodox Church as well in this time of crisis. And, um, and so the Orthodox Church will uh, actually move its church to its, the headquarters to Kiev. Um, and uh, um, in Russia at, 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 in the 1400s. And... Um, And it becomes a time where the Orthodox Church can um, develop into a national church. In the 1500s, it becomes the, 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 the nation, and they call themselves the Third Rome, um, replacing Rome and Constantinople in their mind in, in, in power and in, in, in church leadership. Um, so that's going to be something there. But what's going to happen with that as... Um, and, but it's going to solidify Eastern Orthodox in society, and we're going to see that actually one of the reasons why it doesn't die out because it really doesn't go anywhere during that time period. 
which is fascinating. Um, all right. Well, I think that was enough information for you guys, don't you? Got any questions? All right, next week we're going to start with the modern period and, uh, and, and the Protestant, and we actually won't get to the Reformation, but we'll talk about what leads up to the Reformation. And then we're going to spend some time on who Martin Luther is because he's like the famous reformer. He wasn't the only one, but he was the famous one. And uh, then we'll talk some about like Zwingli and, and stuff like that in, in a lesser degree, but we'll spend some time on Martin Luther. Um, but we'll, next week we will be setting the stage for the Reformation. And so we're in the modern period. We're almost through this. We've covered a lot of church history so far, haven't we? You guys didn't know we came so far, huh? <laughs> All right, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father God, Lord, I praise you today, Lord. I thank you for your, your constant uh, vigilance, Lord. I pray that you would bless us and keep us, Lord. Help us to know exactly what to do and when to do it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Set it down, okay? Listen to your mama, okay? <laughs>